to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to Roswell Presbyterian Church. It's a joy to be in worship with you this morning. I want to remind you that tomorrow is the deadline to sign up for the RPC Mission Golf Tournament, which is at Brookfield Country Club. We're going to raise a a ton of money for our mission partners. We'd love for you to be a part of it. I'll be there uh, proving that everybody's a better golfer. It's going to be a great time. uh, So the deadline to sign up is tomorrow. And today we're going to continue our sermon series, Roots to Roots. We're exploring the historic creeds and confessions of our church tradition, and we're seeing where we've been over the last 2,000 years and how that leads us and can direct and guide us to where we want to go. We've looked at the Nicene Creed. We answered the question, who is Jesus? We looked at the Apostles' Creed. So what can everybody agree on down through the ages and around the world? We made English teachers happy everywhere when we clarified the difference between a capital C and a lowercase c in the word Catholic. Last week, Randy did a great job with the Heidelberg Catechism, and today we're going to look at the second Helvetic Confession. That word Helvetic is just Latin for the word Swiss, and this confession was written in Switzerland. So let us now confess our faith. It's just one paragraph. It's the, the whole confession is like 65 pages long. Um, And for those of you that didn't memorize it, we'll have it on the screen. Um, (laughs) Church, what do you believe? For God in his mercy has permitted the powers of the intellect to remain, though differing greatly from what was in man before the fall. God commands us to cultivate our natural talents and meanwhile adds both gifts and success. And it is obvious that we make no progress in all the arts without God's blessing. In any case, Scripture refers all the arts to God. And now our past Scripture passage comes from Mark 16, verse 15. These are the words of Jesus as he gives commands to his disciples both then and down through the ages. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask in the next few moments you might be our teacher, that you might teach us as only you can, that you might clarify some misconceptions that we have about our lives and our relationship with you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When do you feel like you're really participating in Christian ministry? Is it when you're in church, singing songs, singing hymns? When do you feel like you're really doing the Lord's work? Is it when you attend a Bible study, read a Christian book? When do you feel like you're really fulfilling your Christian vocation? Is it when you pray to bless a meal when you go to Sunday school? What counts as ministry? When do you feel spiritual enough? Maybe you feel like the young man who chased me down on Peachtree Street a few years ago. For years I had this Saturday routine. 
Where I was living at the time, I would run down Peachtree for three miles to my gym. I'd work out, lift weights, and then I would run back home. I'd do this every Saturday morning. And so one Saturday, I ran to the gym, lifted, and then started heading back. And I was there in Midtown. I was passing by, you know, where the High Museum there is on Peachtree Street. And there was a young man running the other direction. And as all runners know, you kind of like, like that, and we nod and keep running. About five minutes later, I have this sensation that someone is chasing me. And then all of a sudden, I, I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and it's that young man that I'd passed five minutes earlier. And I'm thinking the same thing you're thinking. How in the world did he catch me? <laughs> he says to me, are, are you that pastor from that old church in Midtown? I said, yes. He said, would you pray for me? I said, sure, man. So I lay hands on him, pray for him right there. Then I say to him, I say, what's going on? He says, well, I'm having a crisis of faith. I said, okay, well, how about you come in and let's talk this week? And so he came into my office. Kelvin is his name. I said, what's the problem? He says, man, I'm a medical student at Morehouse. And I'm wondering if, if I can serve God as a doctor. Maybe I should become a pastor. And I said, my God, no. <laughs> you can, of course you can serve God as a, as a doctor. You don't need to become a pastor. And ever since that conversation with Kelvin, it's had me thinking about a misconception about our lives, our vocation, our calling. It got me thinking, when are you doing Really doing the Lord's work. Sure, on Sunday mornings, yeah, but what do you feel the other six days of the week? Maybe you're an accountant and you don't feel like you're serving God by keeping track of debits and credits. <laughs> Maybe you're a teacher and you're wondering are you really doing God's work teaching grammar? Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and you're wondering about your spiritual usefulness. Maybe you're retired. You don't have a nine-to-five job anymore. And you're wondering, do you still have a vocation? How are you to understand your spiritual life when you're not doing explicit spiritual things? Friends, if this is a question or an issue you wrestle with, the second Helvetic confession is for you. There's a common misconception that makes a hard distinction between what we do here on Sunday mornings and the rest of your life, the other six days of the week. There's an assumption that what we do in sacred spaces is more important than what we do out there in secular spaces. It's this belief that the reading we had today from the second Helvetic Confession, this is what it attempts to correct. See, this, this misconception goes back to the earliest days of the church. The church was kind of grew out of the Greco-Roman world. And at the time, there was this belief that you wanted to escape this world. You wanted to get to the spiritual realm. Because, because this space, the secular space, was rotten. It was dirty, it was ephemeral, it was gone, it was given to death, and the thing was to escape. It was to get out of here. 
the physical world was too ephemeral. We should focus in on that spiritual world out there. And if this was your view of life and of your life in the world, it was a view and a perspective of escape. And so in the ancient world, people withdrew to Gnostic secret cults. Philosophers wanted to retreat to Plato's ideas of the, of the forms. But this mode of life was about escape. However, the, the Bible gave a different picture as interpreted through the creeds and confessions. It's not one of escape. It's one of engagement. God engages the world in Genesis by breathing the spirit of life, the ruach, into humans and gives us life. With Israel, God engages the people through making covenant promises with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. In the New Testament, God comes from the spirit world and takes on human flesh in Jesus Christ. And then Revelation, if you look, you'll see it's not one of escape where we're trying to get to some heaven in the, in the sky, but no, in the form of the new Jerusalem, heaven comes to earth. Between escape and engagement, the Bible and our book of confessions calls us to engage the world. This is the work of ministry. Now for years, and for much of Christian history, ministry was for a select few. It was for priests, for cardinals, for popes. There was in the Roman Catholic Church, the professionalization of the clergy. Priests were known as those who do the holy work. They read and study the Bible. They do the sacraments. They're responsible for the church's activities. But at the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers brought a critique against this view of Christian ministry and of the institutional church. They saw the church's leadership and its political allies as exploiting the people and enriching themselves. The reformers were worried about the lack of education of the people. They were illiterate. They, illiterate. they couldn't read the Bible. They were worried that the work of ministry was restricted to a special group of people, of clergy, cardinals, and popes. And so the Reformers write three of our confessions. We've looked at them, the Scots Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and today's Second Helvetic Confession. At the time of the Reformation, critiquing this view, the paragraph I chose from the Second Helvetic Confession expresses a particular viewpoint about our vocation and calling on the world. The other six days of the week, I don't want you to take it for granted. Listen to this. For God, in his mercy, has permitted the powers of the intellect to remain, though differing greatly from what was in man before the fall. God commands us to cultivate our natural talents and meanwhile adds both gifts and success. And it is obvious that we make no progress in all the arts without God's blessing. In any case, Scripture refers all the arts to God. The confession is saying, the arts, whatever you do with your hands the other six days of the week, do it unto the Lord. You're called to do it. Out of the Reformation, there developed a, a way of talking about your vocation or your calling. There was the first calling, which is a general calling, a calling to become a Christian, to follow Christ, to join a church, to be baptized. 
And the second calling, though, was to your job, to your vocation, to your hobby, what you did the other six days, that you were called to it to see yourself as called by God. That it's not for just some selected group of spiritual people, but we are all called to Christian ministry together. Whether you're a teacher, a coach, a stay-at-home parent, medical professional, an entrepreneur, whatever your art is, do it unto the Lord. You don't need to be a pastor or work at a church to serve God. Thank heavens. God calls you to serve Him wherever you go. God is at work in the seemingly mundane details of our lives. In fact, often in the mundane details, we can find great meaning when we do those seemingly mundane details in the light of God's call. Something as mundane as making bread can be a site of sacred meaning. Take this passage from Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly. It's about his work working as a chef in New York City in fine dining restaurants. And his book is fantastic, right? He tells about all these memorable characters he meets in the kitchens of these fine and fancy restaurants. He's funny, he's insightful, he's often very sarcastic. In one part of the book, he describes this bread maker named Adam. He never gives his last name. Adam was a total mess of a human being, but he was a genius at making bread. And I mean, I've tried to cut this down. I just, it's just so good. It's a long quote. I'm sorry, but it's, you're going to thank me. Listen to this. This is Bourdain writing. And notice, when he talks about Adam, when he talks about Adam, Anthony's not a Christian, not as, and especially I think of him as like a spiritual person, but he has to use the language of calling, of theology of God to talk about this man's vocation. Listen to this. Why did God, in all his wisdom, choose Adam to be the recipient of greatness? Why, of all his creatures, did he choose this loud, dirty, unkempt, obnoxious, uncontrollable, megalomaniac madman to be his personal bread baker? How was it that this disgrace as an employee, as a citizen, as a human being, this undocumented, untrained, uneducated, and unwashed mental case who's been employed for about 10 minutes by every kitchen in New York could throw together a little flour and water and make magic happen? I'm talking about real magic here, people. I may have wanted Adam dead a thousand times over. I may have imagined, even planned his demise. And then he goes on to talk about dismembering Adam, but I'll skip that part. (laughs) But his bread and his pizza crust are simply divine. To see his bread coming out of the oven, to smell it, that deeply satisfying, spiritually comforting wop, waft of yeasty goodness to tear into it, breaking apart that flowery, dusty crust into the ethereal, textured interior. To taste it is to experience real genius. His peasant-style bulls are the perfect objects, an arrangement of atoms unimprovable by God or man, pleasing to all the senses at once. Cezanne would have wanted to paint them, but might not have considered himself up to the job. Adam, real last name unknown, may be the enemy of polite society, a menace to happy, a happy, any happy kitchen, a security risk, and a potential serial killer. 
but the man can bake. He's an idiot savant with whom God has serious, frequent, and intimate conversations. I just can't imagine what he's telling him or whether the message is getting garbled during transmission. Adam gets right with God with every proof rack of sourdough bread he pulls out of the oven, every crispy, crunchy, deliciously blistered pizza. It's God's little joke on all of us, especially me. I mean, oh! Whenever I think about Adam in that passage, I think about our vocation. What are you called to do in your own unique way? No matter how much of a personal mess he was, he found his vocation by meeting the world's hunger. Reminds me of the late novelist and pastor Frederick Buechner. Died last week. And he once famously said about vocation, he said this, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's great hunger meet. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's great hunger meet. This means you can be a bread maker or a million other things, but are you doing it for the love of God and for the love of people? This is why when somebody asks Jesus, says what should we do, what do we need to do to follow the commandments, Jesus keeps it quite broad. It says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then before Jesus' ascension in Mark 16, as we read earlier, he gives the command, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. Not just part of it. Not just the sacred part, not just the religious part, to the whole creation. It seems that whatever you do, God is calling you not to escape from the world, but to engage it, to do your work, your vocation unto the Lord. I'm going to conclude with a prayer from kind of a surprising person, a Roman Catholic writer from Georgia, one of the great writers of the 20th century. Not long ago, I went to a reading where Bill Sessions, who's Flannery O'Connor's official biographer, was giving a reading about a book he had recently published. Flannery lived a short life. She died at the age of 39, lived in Milledgeville, Georgia. She packed a lot into her short life. Two novels, 32 short stories. Was posthumously awarded the National Book Award. Was widely considered one of the great writers of the 20th century. But she didn't know she would always be successful, especially when she was a young girl. At this reading I was at, Bill Sessions had just discovered personal papers of Flannery, a journal, where she had written prayers as a young girl when she was in college. And he collected them into Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal. And here's one of her prayers as a 21-year-old woman. She writes about vocation. Listen to this. Please help me to know the will of my father. Not a scrupulous nervousness, nor yet a lax presumption, but a clear, reasonable knowledge. And after this, give me a strong will to be able to bend it to the will of my Father. Please let Christian principles permeate my writing, and please let there be enough of my writing published <laughs> for Christian principles to permeate. I dread, O oh Lord, losing my faith 
My mind is not strong. It is prey to all sorts of intellectual quackery. I do not want it to be fear which keeps me in the church. I don't want to be a coward staying with you because I fear hell. But the point more specifically here is I don't want to fear to be out. I want to love to be in. I don't want to believe in hell but in heaven. Stating this does me no good. It is a matter of the gift of grace. Help me to feel that that I will give up every earthly thing for this. I do not mean becoming a nun. (laughs) Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it unto the Lord. God has blessed you with intelligence, ingenuity, resources. Use them to bless God and bless the world. We do this on Sunday and the other six days of the week. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we pray that you, by your spirit, might empower us to fulfill the special callings you've called us to, that we might have courage, great love, Lord, that we might engage a world that you love as well. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.